0: my friends, and welcome again to The Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who He is, and what He's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. Today is going to be the first episode exploring the book of Jeremiah. Now, I love the book of Jeremiah because I like consistency, and (laughs) the way for you to think about the connection between Jeremiah and Isaiah is that Isaiah is a kaleidoscope. Right. Isaiah is almost a dizzying array of all of these different images and bright colors, and we've got the servant, and we've got this new creation, and it, we're just all over the place, and it's beautiful. It's heart-stirring. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Isaiah is a kaleidoscope. Jeremiah is a microscope. In the book of Jeremiah, we are basically focused in on one thing, and that is sin And God's judgment of sin. And so we are hyper-focused for this entire book. And so Jeremiah is, by word count, the longest book in the Bible. And it can be exhausting because it's really examining from A to Z, from every conceivable angle, our sin and rebellion against God. And that's not something that we love to hear. But friends, it's something that we desperately need to hear. So before we jump into the book of Jeremiah, let's do what we always do. Let's orient ourselves around a timeline. So as we think about a timeline moving from the left to the right, as we move from the left to the right, we're getting closer to the birth of Jesus. The first event that we can date in the Old Testament with some degree of accuracy is the birth of Abraham. This takes place in around 2167 B.C. As we move from the left to the right, the next event that we come to is something called the Patriarchal Age. The word patriarch means founding or ruling or beginning father. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is their lifespan. They are the founding fathers of the nation of Israel. The last patriarch is a man named Jacob. Jacob is Abraham's grandson, and when he dies, there's 70 people in the family of Abraham, and they're living in Egypt. Over the next four or 500 years, they're going to remain in Egypt. They're going to grow and multiply, just like God promised in the book of Genesis, But they're also going to come under Egyptian oppression and be slaves in Egypt, just like God promised. This slavery is going to end in 1446. In 1446, God sends Moses into Egypt. He brings the people out in an event that we call the Exodus. Moses leads the people to Mount Sinai, where God gives them the Ten Commandments, enters into a covenant with them. And they're going to be at Mount Sinai for one year. After this one year, they're going to take what should be a two-week walk from Mount Sinai up to the Promised Land. But because of their sin and rebellion, it takes them 40 years. And the entire generation of adults who left Egypt is going to die in the wilderness. The last of these adults to die is going to be Moses. In 1406, Moses is going to give us his farewell speech, which we call the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses is going to die. And Joshua is going to take over leadership of God's people. He'll lead them into the promised land, and he'll lead them for about 20 or 30 years. During Joshua's leadership, they'll conquer much of the land of Canaan and begin to settle into their inheritance. And when Joshua dies, we enter into what's called the period of the judges. Judges are not courtroom officials. They are regional military leaders that God raises up for the deliverance of his people from foreign oppression. The period of the judges is dark and bloody and bleak. The last of these judges is a man named Samuel. Samuel anoints the first king, a man named Saul. Saul reigns for 40 years, and he looks the part of a king. He's tall, he's handsome, he's wealthy, but he doesn't fear God and instead fears man. And so he's fired from being king, and God places David on the throne. David's going to reign for 40 years, and the most important event of David's life is going to be that in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that from his line will come the deliverer, the eternal king. David's going to die in around 971 BC, so about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. And his son Solomon's going to take the throne. Now Solomon's going to start off great. He asks for wisdom. He becomes wealthy and wise and powerful. But his heart drifts away from the Lord and he ends his life in idolatry and cruelty towards God's people. And in response to this breach of faith, God is going to split the kingdom in two. Whenever Solomon dies and Rehoboam takes the throne, Rehoboam makes a very foolish choice. He does not listen to wise advice and the kingdom of Israel splits in two. And we now have two Israelite kingdoms. We have Israel, also called Ephraim or Samaria up in the north. They're ruled by 20 different kings from 10 different dynasties. None of them worship Yahweh. And the kingdom of Israel is birthed in idolatry and ends because of their idolatry in 722. In 722, the Assyrian empire destroys and exiles the northern kingdom and they never come back. The southern kingdom of Judah is going to last a little bit longer. They're also going to have 20 kings, but they're all going to come from the family of David. Judah is where Jerusalem and the temple are as well. And they're going to go a little bit further because of the occasional good king who pops up. Uh, But their end will come in 586. In 586, the Babylonians invade and conquer and exile the people. They destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. They destroy the Davidic monarchy. And it looks like God's promises have failed, but they have not failed. And in 539... God brings it about that 75,000 Jews return home from their exile. They go home to the promised land. They begin to rebuild their lives. And in 516, they rebuild the second temple. Uh, And if we skip ahead about 80 ish years, Malachi writes his book of prophecy in 430 BC. So that's the Old Testament. Now remember that Jeremiah is in the middle section of Jesus' Bible. We talk about Jesus' Bible as the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. In this middle section, the Nevi'im, the prophets, this is where we find Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is one of the latter prophets, not giving us more narrative information about the people of Israel, but rather giving us God's commentary on the events that we're reading about in First and Second Kings. And the events of Jeremiah are going to take place in about 50 years, uh, from 30 years before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 to about 10 or 20 years after. So Jeremiah prophesies during this last little gasp of the kingdom of Judah. So who wrote this book? And this is such a fascinating little area for me, uh, because we testify and believe, as God's scriptures testify, that they're breathed out and inspired by God. But in the book of Jeremiah, we get a glimpse into how perhaps many of the books of the Bible came to be. Because over and over again, as all the prophets do, Jeremiah insists that what he's saying to you is the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. And yet, Jeremiah, the man, is the one speaking these words. But we also find out that there's a man named Baruch, who is Jeremiah's scribe. And God speaks to Jeremiah, but it seems as if Baruch is the one who writes down most of the book. Like in Jeremiah 36.4, it says, Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. So we've got God ultimately speaking. Jeremiah speaking, and Baruch writing, and you and I reading and profiting. And so perhaps this is how many of the books of the Bible came to be. So when? Well, this, like I said, roughly speaking from about 620-ish BC, so about 30 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, to about 570-ish BC, about 10 or 15 years after. So we're talking about a, anywhere from a 40 to 50, maybe even 60-year period surrounding the exile. Uh, where? Well, mostly Jerusalem, although Jeremiah is going to be taken to Egypt at the very end of his life. And the last question to ask before we jump into our first theme is why? Well, Jeremiah 1.10 is a great look at the purpose of this book. It says, God speaking to Jeremiah here, see, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So Jeremiah has a twofold mission. Mission number one, tear down. And so Jeremiah is going to explain why Yahweh is bringing the judgment of exile on his people. And it's simple, because they had both violated Yahweh's commands, and from another perspective, they had been an unfaithful bride to Yahweh in their idolatry. And Jeremiah is going to tear down by demonstrating Judah's unbelief through stories from his own life. Both individuals and groups and the nation at large reject Jeremiah's message and persecute him as Yahweh's messenger. But the second part of Jeremiah's mission is that he is going to be used to build up. And he's going to offer hope for Israel's future by promising that Yahweh would restore his people from exile, he would forgive their sins, and he will establish a new covenant. And all of this will reverse all the failures of the past. So let's jump into our first theme in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah presents Yahweh's case against Judah for its covenant infidelity. So, as I've said before in other episodes, when we think about the prophets of the Old Testament, we want to think about them not primarily as fortune tellers, but we want to think about them as prosecuting attorneys, that they are sent by Yahweh to hold up the Old Covenant and to point to the Old Covenant and to evaluate every person, every king, every priest, every prophet, every Israelite against the standard of the Old Covenant and to accuse people of breaking it, to warn them of judgment, and to offer hope for any and all who will repent. To give you another sort of metaphor here to think about with prophets, think about a smoke alarm. Now, the purpose of a smoke alarm is to let you know when there's a problem, right? Your smoke alarm goes off when there's a fire in your house. So you could say, in a manner of speaking, that your smoke alarm predicts the future. Your smoke alarm, when it goes off, is telling you Hey, there's a fire right now, and if you don't leave, if you don't get out, you're going to be killed in this fire. But the purpose of your smoke alarm, quote unquote, predicting the future, is to change your behavior right now. Get out of the house. Put this fire out. And that's why God uses prophets. So yes, he is telling them there is a fire coming. It's a fire of my judgment, and it's in response to your sin. But I'm telling you the future so that you'll change your behavior right now. So let's look at this idea of Jeremiah as the prosecuting attorney. According to God, Israel, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom, the people of Judah, had violated their covenant with Yahweh and were about to be judged with military defeat in exile. Jeremiah 11, 1-5, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So you shall be my people and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing of milk and honey as at this day that I answered, so be it, Lord. Now remember, according to the Torah, according to Genesis through Deuteronomy, in the promised land, Life is conditioned upon obedience to Yahweh's commands. And to turn from Yahweh is to turn towards death. And so Judah, the southern kingdom. Now remember, the northern kingdom was destroyed about 100 years before Jeremiah starts to preach. But that story of Israel, the northern kingdom, their rebellion and destruction would have been known to the people that Jeremiah was speaking to. And Jeremiah says to them, the people of Judah, just like your cousins up north. You're not only guilty, but from another perspective, you're also unfaithful. You're behaving like an unfaithful bride. Jeremiah 2.20, God says, for long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. I won't serve you, Yahweh. And Yahweh says, yet on every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. You don't serve Yahweh, but you serve and give pleasure to all these other nations instead of serving the one who loves you. Now, as becomes clear, the primary sin of Judah is idolatry. Jeremiah 519, and when your people say, why has the Lord done all these things to us? Why, why are we experiencing famine and drought and plague and, de- and defeat and battle and exile? Say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, the land I gave you, basically like, our home that we've made together, you've been unfaithful to me in our home? So you shall serve foreigners in a land that's not yours. All right? You see this sort of parallel discipline, this proportional discipline. You've served foreign gods in my land, so I'm going to kick you out, and you can go serve foreigners over there in their land. The people of Judah had exchanged the true God for fake gods, something no other nation would do. God says almost in like disbelief, he says, cross to the coast of Cyprus or go to Kedar and examine, see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation ever changed its gods, even though there are no gods? All those nations who worship false gods, they're more loyal to their false gods than the people of Judah are to the real God. My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And this is not a question of personal taste. It's not a matter of like, well, oh, I prefer this God or I like serving this God because he asked for this False gods are useless and they lead to death. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. Be shocked. Be appalled. But be shocked and be appalled at ourselves. Don't just see, oh, how could Israel do this? How could Judah do this? How could we do this? Things had gotten so bad in Judah that child sacrifice was being practiced. And what's shocking is when we get to the end of the book of Jeremiah and the exile and destruction have already happened, the surviving Jews tell Jeremiah, this happened because we didn't worship the false gods enough. And as we see, and as we have seen throughout the Old Testament, no matter how many gods Judah worships, they'll never be help in times of trouble because they don't exist Right. It says in Jeremiah 10, one through five, hear the word the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. They're like trying to lean on smoke. It won't support you. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an ax by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so they cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak, and they have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they can't do evil, but neither is it in them to do good. So it's an open and shut case. They are guilty of idolatry. So what's the sentence? Jeremiah not only shows us the sin of Israel, idolatry, but they also show us the consequences of idolatry. A disregard for Yahweh's demands results in the people becoming like their false gods, The idols have eyes and don't see, and they have ears and don't hear. And Jeremiah 5.21 says, My people have become like that. They walk around with eyes and ears, but they neither see nor hear the true God. A disregard for Yahweh's demands leads to people foolishly replacing obedience with lawbreaking, which leads to a downward spiral of misery in society. People are living as if there is no God, and even if there is a God, He won't judge because He doesn't care what I do. And this, of course, just brings about rampant wickedness and injustice in every society. In a particularly telling scene, the Babylonian army has surrounded Jerusalem. And so all the wealthy and powerful make a covenant with their slaves to release them, which according to the old covenant should have been happening every seven years anyway, but no one ever did. So they release all their slaves trying to basically bribe God. Hey, look, we're obeying. Have mercy. And the Babylonian army leaves. And the wealthy and powerful enslave the poor yet again. And so in a display of his perfect justice, God says, I will take away in chains you who have enslaved others. So we ask the question, how did it get this bad? And the answer is leadership. Corrupt leadership was largely responsible for Judah's spiritual condition. And that's Judah's civil leaders. So the last four kings of Judah were all ungodly and disobedient. Now, all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, Yahweh had promised that the line of David would rule forever. But each individual king's reign was conditioned on their obedience to the Mosaic Covenant. So God made to David an unbreakable promise. From your line will come the eternal king, who we know to be Jesus. But each individual king was going to be judged on whether or not they were faithful and obedient to the law of Moses. And the last king of Judah who actually strives to be faithful, is Josiah. And the last four kings after Josiah are all going to be either his sons or grandsons. And all of them, all of them, to one degree or another, reject the law of the Lord and practice idolatry and injustice and are judged and condemned one after another. We read about these kings oppressing people, taxing people in order to build themselves bigger and bigger palaces. And Jeremiah warns that this behavior would lead to the end of the Davidic kingdom, lead to the end of the kingdom of Judah. And we see that judgment fall on these last four rulers. One is exiled to Egypt. One is, we find out that he is going to die and be just dragged outside the city and dumped in a ditch, dead and forgotten. One will be exiled to Babylon. And the fourth and final king, Zedekiah, will be exiled to Babylon, but only after watching his children be executed and having his eyes put out. Quite a grisly end for this ruler from the line of David. As has become quite clear by reading the book of Kings and the book of Jeremiah, the future hope of the Davidic dynasty would not be someone who was merely human, but rather he would be the ideal and perfect David, someone that Jeremiah calls the righteous branch. Jeremiah 23, 5, "...behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely." and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And this is God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So these are the civil leaders, but what about Judah's spiritual leaders? Well, we find out they're no better than the civil leaders. In fact, they often are leading the opposition against Jeremiah. We find out that the prophets and the priests are godless Greedy for dishonest gain, spreaders of falsehoods, telling people what they want to hear in order to make a profit, promising people that God will never judge them because they're God's chosen people, so you have nothing to worry about, right? They're proclaimers of false peace. And Babylon will be used by God to dash these hopes, and Babylon will utterly destroy the kingdom of Judah. Yahweh loves his people, and he will fight for his people, but he will not protect his people from the consequences of their sins if they will not turn to him in repentance. God loves us. He loves his people too much to excuse or indulge or ignore our sins because our sins are ultimately bad for us. And Yahweh loves his own glory too much. He saved us to be a holy people, and he promised that he would respond to our disobedience with discipline. And Yahweh will be faithful to his word, and he will receive glory. He wants to receive glory, in a manner of speaking, from blessing his people. But if they will not choose to rest and trust in him, he will receive glory by judging his people and showing that he is a God faithful to bless but faithful to curse. So again, the challenge for us as New Covenant readers of Jeremiah is to not read these passages of judgment and sin and think, how could they? But again, to read these passages of judgment and sin and say, first, Lord, forgive me. I do the same things. And I have even less excuse because I know that your son Jesus died on the cross for me. I have your Holy Spirit. I have even less excuse. So we read Jeremiah and we think, Lord, forgive me. And we think, praise the Lord. How patient, how merciful, how kind, how compassionate is our God. There is no one like him. So may we humble ourselves and hear the word of God through Jeremiah and fall deeper in love with Jesus, who is the king we've been waiting for all this time. So friends, Lord willing, the next time we come together, we're going to look at a little bit deeper at the kingdom of Judah's refusal to repent and listen to Jeremiah's message. But for now, take up and read. God bless.